Hi, I'm Cindy Zhang, and this is Tell Me Muse, a podcast where I interview recent McGill graduates to figure out what exactly is classics. In this episode, I speak with Sasha Bogosian, who is currently halfway through a MA program at the University of British Columbia in classical Near Eastern archaeology. So to lay the groundwork a little bit here, and Sasha will do the heavy lifting in a moment to fill in some of the gaps, but we're going to be talking about Nakhichevan, which is a region that is currently under Azerbaijan control, but has previously been occupied by Armenian people. The manifestation of their ties to the land is through these funerary monuments, which are called Hachkars. These are two markers or gravestones, and there is a large collection of them at a gravesite in Jura, which is in Nakhichevan. We're talking about history that is a little bit closer to our own time than what we normally talk about in this podcast, which is stuff that happened two millennia ago. But we can pull some parallels between Rome and the Caucasus, namely in the area of memory creation, memory cultivation, collective social memory, and the importance of that for people and their claims to different territories. We also talk about political ideology and the attempts of Azerbaijan to rewrite and restructure the social commentary about Nakhichevan so that the Azeris or the Azerbaijanis have a more prominent role to play than the Armenians did. Again, I'm delighted to bring you another conversation about research that stems from a training in classics at the undergraduate level. But then Sasha goes on to explore other areas of the ancient Mediterranean world that is not Greece and Rome. Yet you can still see the connections between these areas. I think this is just a really interesting area of study that is definitely very fruitful and holds a lot of potential for future work. So I'm excited to share it with you all. So without further ado, please let me introduce Sasha Bogosian. Sasha, nice to see you again. How are you? Hi, it's so nice to see you as well. Uh, I'm good. How are you? Finished the semester, so ready to start the summer in April as it still continues to snow from time to time. It's bizarre. So just to start us off, uh, I'm excited to talk to you about Armenia and about the Caucasus. I'm not very well versed in this area at all, but I think there are some interesting connections and parallels we can make to ancient Roman practices and uh, stuff like memory cultivation. So before we jump into your current research, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and just give us some fun facts as a way of introduction? Yeah, so I'm Sasha. I'm from Montreal. I now live in Vancouver, where I'm pursuing my master's in classical and Eastern archaeology at UBC. I have gotten into every hobby on the planet, I think, at some point in my life. But the ones that have stuck are reading, writing, drawing, and learning new languages. And I guess this half answers my next question. But how did you end up at McGill and specifically in the classics program? Oh my gosh, I had quite an interesting journey into classics. 
when I first applied to university, I actually thought that I was going to go into photography, which was mainly a hobby I had for like a year or two previously. And true to my nature, as I said before, uh, that dream quickly fizzled and I kind of decided to just look through the program list uh, at McGill and choose whatever seemed interesting at the time. I landed on a double major in history and anthropology with a minor in communication studies. But my first semester, I decided to take Greek myth and intro to classical archaeology. And that is what got me hooked. That's what really convinced me. And so by the end of the semester, I was registered as a double major in classics and anthropology. Here I am. There's a strong legacy from guests we've previously had on this podcast with Professor Totten's Intro to Classical Archaeology. I have never taken this course, but it sounds like every year there's like the the retention rate just from that course is so incredibly high. (laughs) Um, But it's good to hear. And right now you're in UBC doing your two-year master's program. Tell us about that. How did you end up there? What department are you in right now? What are your areas of focus? Anything like that. Yeah, so it's actually really funny that I ended up at UBC because when I was applying, it was initially my last choice. When I was first applying to master's programs, I really looked into all of the programs and all my options, and I found that ultimately UBC offered me a lot of the things that I really wanted to do in a master's program. You know, I thought the courses were so interdisciplinary. The program itself is entirely interdisciplinary. Um, The department incorporates not just classics, but also Near Eastern studies, religious studies, Egyptology. And so there were so many courses that I could take to kind of explore my interests. And not just that, but at UBC, I also get to do teaching assistantships and research assistantships, which are really important to me. And so ultimately, I, I was convinced by the end that it was the best place for me. And I was correct. So I'm in the AMNI department, which is Ancient Mediterranean Near Eastern Studies. And my program is in uh, classical and Near Eastern archaeology, where I specialize mainly in Roman archaeology and even more specifically in kind of investigating the interconnections between the Roman Empire and Armenia. How did you get into this area that you're currently studying into the Caucasus and this region of the world? Uh, Well, I am Armenian. Uh, That helps. So I, I grew up kind of obviously learning about my own culture and Uh, learning the language and everything, but it also mainly stemmed from not ever really seeing Armenia mentioned in history classes or books, ancient and modern. The only time I ever heard about Armenian history was in relation to the genocide uh, during World War I, which is kind of a really depressing thing to constantly be hearing about in the context of history classes. There's so, so much interesting history that comes from Armenia, and none of it is really ever mentioned. It's really pushed to the side and marginalized in comparison to obviously the Roman Empire and you know all these other various the Persian Empire and all these other empires that kind of mark the history of the region and so I thought you know why not use my knowledge of Armenian history and kind of put these stories to the forefront while also exploring my other interests in classics especially you know and I honestly didn't even realize that I could specialize in this until a class at, that I took at McGill when I was in Intermediate Latin. We were reading poems by Statius. And in one of the poems, uh, it mentioned the perfumed lands of Armenia. And so I was like, oh, like, why is it perfumed? <laughs> and so I asked, and Professor Gladhill told me that um, apparently the Romans got some incense from Armenia. And so that's kind of where that perfume thing comes from. And I started to notice more and more that it comes up 
quite a bit in Roman literature as, you know, whenever they need to exoticize the East, you know, Armenia was their first pick, which was really, really interesting. And that's really what got me interested in these interconnections between Rome and Armenia. And here I am. And in this paper that we're going to be talking about today, it's mostly focused in the Caucasus. So given that I, <laughs> I have never studied anything related to this area of the world and, um, you know, in order for this to be an intelligent conversation in any way, it would be <laughs> great, I think, if you could set us up a little bit here. Talk us through maybe the historical background of this region. What are the conflicts like that built up to this time period you're talking about, which is the 19th, 20th century? Yeah, so the Caucasus is a mountainous region in West Asia, uh, located between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. It comprises mainly of four countries, so Armenia and Azerbaijan in the south, and Georgia and Russia in the north. There are also quite a few autonomous republics and unrecognized countries which exist in the Caucasus, including some of the ones that we'll be talking about, like the Nakhichevan Autonomous Republic and Artsakh, known internationally as Nagorno-Karabakh. But basically in the 19th and 20th centuries especially, the area was pretty rife with conflict in various forms, uh, mostly as a result of ongoing colonization and imperial control by both the Ottomans and the Russians. Some of the events, especially that fundamentally changed the demographics of the Caucasus, include the 1813 and 1828 Russian annexation of uh, most of modern Azerbaijan, Yerevan, and Nakhichevan, which really meant that a lot of the Armenian population, at the very least, that was spread out throughout the Caucasus ended up migrating into the newly created Russian Armenian province um, because they were previously living under Ottoman Muslim rule, but they would have rather obviously had their own kind of territory in which they can practice their Christian faith, you know, more freely than they could in the Ottoman Empire. And so this migration kind of caused them to mainly live in the what's now the modern day borders of Armenia Nagorno-Karabakh approximately. And so generally speaking, there was unfortunately quite a lot of bloodshed throughout these centuries. For Armenians, at least, this was marked by the Hamidjan massacres in the late 19th century perpetrated by the Ottomans followed by, uh, almost immediately, by the Armeno-Tatar War, fought between uh, Armenians and Azerbaijanis, um, in which both sides were just destroying villages and mercilessly killing each other. It was actually horrible. And that was then followed by the Armenian Genocide of 1915, and then, of course, the formation of the Soviet Union. So a lot of your research in this area has to do with political ideology and the like social communal identity that is founded through memory and manifested through physical monuments and sites where people can go and participate in the propagation of this memory. So who are kind of the players involved in what you're researching? Maybe I should clarify by saying you're looking primarily at uh, monuments that were, uh, until very recently, still standing, which were the tombstones, uh, different types of tomb markings in one of these territories. So who are the different players involved in the cultivation or the destruction of these grave sites? Yeah, so we're talking mainly about two distinct groups. So the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis um, are the main players here. So 
The Armenians are a group who have a very long history of habitation in the Caucasus. The, what's really interesting is the oldest mention of Armenia as a territorial entity that we have in the archaeological record is found in the Behistun inscription, which is a multilingual inscription that was carved into the rocky surface of Mount Behistun in western Iran. And it dates approximately to the 6th century BCE and was made under the reign of uh, Darius the Great. And it basically lists all the territories under Darius's control, and one of those was Armenia. It was, I think, the actual word that was written was Armina, which was obviously translated to Armenia. And so that's the oldest mention we have. But a lot of scholars kind of view Urartu, which was a kingdom in the Iron Age that lived in the Armenian highlands and around the area of Van, which is modern day Turkey. A lot of them view Urartu as like the origin, basically, of Armenian history. But again, this is kind of debated. But essentially, generally speaking, Armenians live in the modern day Republic of Armenia. But diaspora communities exist in many, many places everywhere across the globe. Native language is Armenian, um, which is its own branch of the Indo-European family, and they are primarily Christian. Now, the Azerbaijanis um, are another group, another ethnic group, which seem to send mostly from like a mixture of various indigenous Caucasian groups mixed with these Turkic groups that had started migrating into Anatolia in various waves throughout the Middle Ages um, and into the early modern period. That's at least what we know currently from studies, but they live in the modern day Republic of Azerbaijan, as well as in the Nakhichevan Autonomous Republic, um, which is an exclave which operates under their own constitution and legislation, but under the flag currency, et cetera, of Azerbaijan. Their native language is Azerbaijani, which is a member of the Turkic language family, and they are primarily uh, Shiite Muslims. So we're here in the Nakhichevan region, and there's also an ideological conflict that you talk about that's happening here because of this territorial dispute and because both sides want to claim ancestral ties to the land. There is a certain degree of memory construction and potentially manipulation of different narratives that are being passed around to talk about the origins of this region from both sides. So can you talk us through the ideology that the Azeris or the Azerbaijanis have propagated about their claims to this territory? Yes. So um, I'll start off mainly with why this ideology was even created, really. It mostly starts with uh, the Soviet Union. And so the territorial disputes, at the very least, commenced when, in the period actually just before the Soviet Union, when all of these territories were independent. And there were attempts to gain territory by both sides. So Armenia had fought to gain control over the regions of Nakhichevan, Nagorno-Karabakh, and Zangezur. They were promised all three, but Stalin ended up reversing the decision and instead gave Nakhichevan and Nagorno-Karabakh to Azerbaijan, and left Armenia with Zangezur, which is the modern-day province of Sunik. Later on, while uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan were incorporated into the Soviet Union, they eventually became SSRs, which means Soviet Socialist Republics. So basically, they self-governed, but under, obviously, the Soviet flag and government. And so during this time, the Soviets started to promote this policy of indigenization, which basically means that any claims of authority that a country might assume would have to be mainly proven by means of historical narratives, which prove that your people were there first and that, you know, they on that basis deserve to keep that land or be on that land. 
And so this is really where that tension starts to come in because Azerbaijan only seemingly gained a national identity and a really national consciousness in the 20th century. And so they started to be seen really as newcomers to the region, as opposed to, you know, the Armenians and Georgian, which were seen as kind of these inheritors of the ancient history of the Caucasus. And so this really put their territorial integrity at risk. And so this is kind of where it starts to come out from. So the Azeri national ideology seems to have been created mainly, obviously, for political purposes, as most national ideologies are, but seems to stem mainly from after the Armeno-Tatar War of 1905-6, in order to gain some form of authority as an independent state for themselves, as they were trying to create an independent state. And so after having faced the Armenian Tashnags during the war, who seemed to be very well organized, and then compounded with their continuous failure to form an independent state after the collapse of not just the Russian, but also the Ottoman empires, they started to form this nationalist ideology, mainly based on a revisionist ancient history for Azerbaijan, which would help them combat these claims of being newcomers to the region, but also help them gain some form of authority on the basis of a superficial ancient history. So the Nakhichevan region, is it right now governed by Azeris? But so, so that's why they come into these problems wherein like word on the street is that the Azerbaijanis don't have ancestral claims to this land. And then that's why they have to spin this political propaganda. Yeah, pretty much. They have to kind of create this some form of authority to this territory, which they were newly given and which they now obviously inhabit. So just to clarify, they were the Azerbaijanis got control over this region as a result of the collapse of the Soviet Union? No, they were given it just before the Soviet Union. Control of Nafichevan changed quite frequently, especially between 1917 and 1919. In 1919, Nafichevan was handed over to Armenia, but this lasted really only a year before the Nakhichevan SSR was formed under the Soviet Union. And under the Soviet Union, um, the political and economic control of the area was given to Azerbaijan, and it's remained under the control of Azerbaijan ever since. And with it, of course, the monuments that are located in Nakhichevan. Take us through some of the political ideology that is being propagated by the Azerbaijani. So most of the ideology is based, again, on this revisionist ancient history. And so it seems to be propagated mainly through textbooks and maps, which is like the most obvious way we can see this. And so there are quite a few maps uh, within these school textbooks that were found, which try to depict the Azeri state as having at some point in the past encompassed these huge swaths of land from Iran up to Russia and Georgia and, of course, all of Armenia, and which um, frequently ascribed Turkic place names to all these places in order to kind of make it seem like they had always at some point had these territories. And so really importantly, the textbooks basically entirely erase Armenian and Armenians off the map. They don't really mention them at all. And Azerbaijan associates itself with different groups which had formerly lived in the Caucasus region, like Caucasian Albania, the states of Mana and Atropatina, but never Armenia importantly. And this is kind of used as proof that Armenians had never in fact inhabited Azeri lands, which obviously isn't true. And so this is kind of the main components that we see, especially disseminated in textbooks and maps. In Nakhichevan and 
within this ideological conflict, what is the role that collective memory plays for uh, the Armenians? Yeah, it's it's basically, I mean, the whole thing is basically an us versus them situation, right? Memory is a really powerful tool with which the past can kind of be glorified and remembered and revered, but also erased and reconstructed. And so for Armenian collective memory, you know, there's this memory of living in these lands, which is obviously now primarily proven through archaeology and the cultural heritage that's left behind, especially in the areas with little to no modern Armenian habitation, like Nakhichevan. In Nakhichevan, for example, it's kind of seen as like this cradle of Armenian culture because it was thought there, especially that the alphabet was created there, which is, you know, was a really proud moment in Armenian history. And so there very much is this strong sense of collective memory that, you know, radiates from not just these specific places, but also from obviously the cultural heritage that is left behind. And so again, this kind of really strong collective memory has to be actively fought against through the creation of the Azeri collective memory, which obviously is done through this revisionist ancient history, which kind of seeks to reshape that landscape and to counter this like strong Armenian social memory of living in these lands, of, you know, having these really important events occur within these lands. And, you know, that that's the reshaping of that landscape is really through the destruction of Armenian cultural heritage, which is a direct way of kind of countering that. And I think we see I'm trying to draw from areas that I have studied before. So like the the importance of monumentality and of physical sites for collective memory was really important for the Romans too. Uh, so when I was reading about these grave sites and the cemeteries that we're going to move on to talk about and their importance for Armenian memory and ties to the land, I thought about, you know, how the Romans also found importance in cemeteries and in grave sites as well. So they had the huge family tombs that lay outside the city where you could go in and sort of see all of your ancestors and their caskets. And also about how the erasure of memory accompanies the physical destruction of these sites as well, which we see both in your paper and your research and also in uh, the Imperial Roman times too. So, you know, Caligula and Nero, these so-called bad emperors, named so by their successors, of course, their statuary was subjected to destruction through like memory sanctions as well. So I see these parallels in how different societies react to past legacies and past history and lived experiences when they're trying to impose maybe a new ideology for their own political purposes. So can you talk to us about the manifestation of this, uh, this kind of phenomenon in the Caucasus in Nakhichevan and especially uh, your research into the grave sites and these grave stones? Yes, and I totally agree. This, the destruction of this cemetery that we'll be talking about mainly. Uh, it really is like some form of damnatio memoriae. Um, it's, <laughs> this, this is really such a cool connection to make. But yeah, I guess I'll, I'll start with introducing Jura itself. So Jura, it was a town located on the border of the Arax River, which today forms the border between Iran and the Nakhichevan Autonomous Republic. It has a pretty long period of occupation, as far as we can tell from the historical sources. We first find mention of it in Moses Khorinatsi's History of the Armenians, which is a text that seemingly dates to the 5th century, approximately. 
basically it first mentions Jura in a list of localities dating to the time of Tigran the Great, who was the king of Armenia during the second and first centuries BCE. And Jura seemed to be continuously occupied into the late antique and the middle ages in the fifth and 16th centuries, especially. Jura ended up becoming a major center of commerce and it seemed to be the main route through which uh, the East connected to the West. So during this time, Armenian merchants were very, very well known throughout not just West Asia, but also India uh, and the Mediterranean as well, into like Greece and Rome even. And so with this growth of commerce came a growth in population. And that's really how the cemetery of Jura started to become more and more populated. Obviously, as time went on, you know, more and more people were buried there. And so we start to see this kind of growth of not just the town, which at some point was only on one side of the Adox, it started to grow into the other side of the Adox as well. And so to the cemetery, which grew bigger and bigger. And so the cemetery itself is located in a very, very visible location. You can see it from the town. You can see it from the mountains. You can see it if you're crossing through, which is really important. So any travelers passing through would have been able to see the cemetery. Basically, it was what's really, really significant about the cemetery is that it's lined with khachkars, which are stelae carved by specialized craftsmen using local stone. These are really, really significant to Armenian culture. They're a very distinct Armenian Christian development. And so these monuments are erected outdoors. They are positioned kind of vertically, like standing and usually in relation to the cardinal points. Um, and so the khachkars at Jura, for example, are oriented on the east-west axis, as is custom. Um, and it follows the course of the river Adax. And so if you're crossing through the Adax, you would be able to face them. Each khachkar is pretty much entirely unique in design and composition. Um, they all have common motifs. The central motif being, of course, an, an ornamental cross, which is surrounded by different motifs, vegetal motifs, geometric ornaments but also like birds, animals, saints, anthropomorphic figures. They're all super, super unique. And they're basically meant to evoke eternity, especially through this kind of ancient sun symbol that was placed uh, frequently under the cross. And they can get pretty big, <laughs> hence to, you know, that really speaks to its monumentality. You can get up to one to three meters in height, which is pretty big. A lot of them tend to have inscriptions and uh, served as kind of tombstones, as said before, for the deceased. And this was, of course, the case for the cemetery of Jura, which had its own style, actually, in the creation of these khachkars. And the cemetery of Jura is really, really significant, especially because it had the biggest amalgamation of khachkars in the world. It had approximately 10,000. And so this is really what makes it a really special site, because not just for collective memory, but also for Armenian history. The, you know, the various khachkars kind of were also visual and kind of accessible aids to worship. They're very linked to Christianity and this, they're meant to facilitate really the ascent of the soul of the dead into heaven. And so there's also this element of faith, which is really, really deeply important to Armenians as well. And so the cemetery was super, super powerful in that it was this central place of social memory and for group identity, especially, you know, there's this special style that is unique to Jura and the continuous kind of repetition of these rituals would have kind of linked the modern inhabitants, well, the contemporary inhabitants at least, to, you know, their ancestors, not just, you know, the ones buried under, but also, you know, seemingly the ones that were mythical. 
And then not only that, but like the visibility of the cemetery would have helped facilitate, again, this, this social memory. It was always part of the background of Jura. You could always kind of see it somehow. And for travelers passing through, you know, that's one of the first things they would notice upon, you know, passing through this wealth of really, really ornamental uh, stile, which seemed to signify kind of the wealth of not just culture, but also the economy of, of Jura um, as a really important center for Armenian commerce and life. And so this is really where that social memory starts to kind of be seen, especially in the area of, of Nakhichevan. Jura was very much a center of it. Um, as a result of kind of this construction of ritual within the cemetery and the continuous kind of building of these khachkars and erection of these khachkars. And I'm also wondering if we know of any like practiced rituals associated with ancestor worship at these grave sites. Is there any documentation of people maybe frequenting it um, at set intervals in a year to sort of cultivate that memory and tie to the land? Um, well, in, in modern times? In any time that, that we have evidence for. Okay, well, unfortunately, there is not much evidence for this. Um, in modern times, the Azerbaijan would not allow people to come study it. And so as an extension of that, people couldn't visit it either frequently. Um, in fact, a lot of the photos that we have of Jura were primarily taken either before the dissolution of the Soviet Union or after the dissolution of the Soviet Union through the mountains perched on a rooftop in Iran. <laughs> and so this is really the main way that we have a bunch of photos of the Khachkars. Otherwise, it was never really permitted to study them. So unfortunately, we don't really know if there was ever this repetition of rituals. My best guess is no. Um, it probably stopped after the abandonment of the cemetery. We know that the cemetery in the town was abandoned after the Shah of Safavid, Iran, kind of forced the evacuation of the population in the early 17th century. And uh, people actually tried to come back numerous times, but every time he had a plan to kind of force them out again. And so this is really how we see the slow abandonment of Jura, even though numerous times there was, uh, there was an attempt to continuously rehabilitate it. And in fact, it was successful at some point, but the inhabitants really lived in just terrible conditions. And so I think there was very much this decline in the repetition of these rituals, and it very much just, I think, ended. It was, I don't think it was ever really repeated in modern times, but again, I'm, I'm not sure. I think it speaks to how powerful these visual symbols are for collective memory, that even after this area was vacated, that the Azerbaijani authorities still thought it necessary to go in and destroy these monuments. Like it wasn't just enough that nobody was frequenting this site anymore. It was the very visibility of these monuments that made this entire area dangerous for their political ideology. Can you tell us about how the Azerbaijani have been treating this gravesite in particular and the sad story of what remains of it today? Yes. So as we had said before, it was, um, it was not allowed for people to frequent it. Um, and yeah, it was, it was very much this really, really important site in social memory. And so 
there was <laughs> these continuous efforts um, on the part of Armenian researchers to kind of take photos of it, document it as much as possible. And in order to really counter, again, this Armenian social memory, this memory of living in these lands and of having this really important history, I don't know if this was a super planned decision. I believe it was because it was mainly enforced by the armed forces of Azerbaijan. Starting in the late 90s, they started to come in and topple the Khachkars. And then as we got into the early 2000s, they started to uh, not just topple them, but also pulverize them with sledgehammers. And so by, I believe, 2002 or 2005, all that was left really was dust. Um, and they started to uh, take the pulverized remains of these khachkars, put them into a truck, and then they essentially dumped them into the Adox River to be washed away. And currently, if you look at it on Google Maps, there is nothing left of it. It was completely razed to the ground. Um, it was actually used as a training facility for the armed forces of Azerbaijan after, just to really hammer in um, the complete destruction of it. And so right now there's, there's absolutely nothing left, unfortunately, except for the archives and the images that we have from previous times, which is good. Do we know of any Armenian response to this destruction? Or maybe what are some preservation efforts that are happening right now for this gravesite? Do you know of that? Yeah, there's actually been a huge push to revitalize and revive several aspects of, of Armenian culture generally. But especially, uh, there was a huge push after the destruction of this site to revive it in various ways. And there were some really, really cool projects that came out of it. So in Armenia itself, the creation of Khachkars was kind of on a decline in terms of popularity. But this, I think, really shot up the popularity even more. Um, there was kind of this push to replicate a lot of the Khachkars that were destroyed. Um, so looking at images, there are specialized craftsmen who kind of spend their extra time replicating these khachkars um, in order to preserve them in memory. And then also, you know, throughout the diaspora, of course, there's also many who have created their own projects. There's a website dedicated to the cemetery of Juha, which basically recounts the history of it, recounts the history of the destruction, um, and kind of tries to establish the importance of this site to Armenian history. There was even a 3D reconstruction of the cemetery by, I believe, a university in Australia, I believe it's called the Australian Catholic University, who entirely made this virtual 3D exhibition of the cemetery just from uh, the images, the archives of images that we have. I don't think it's still up, unfortunately, but yeah, there's, there's so many examples of this, this revival, this cultural revival in response to this destruction. And so, I mean, if they're going to be destroyed, why not remake them and revive their memory? and kind of counter this destruction of social memory and manipulation of social memory, especially. All of these preservation efforts, do you know if they're happening mostly in Armenia or is, this, is there an international effort behind this? Because I know you cite in your paper that these hachkars have become like UNESCO World Heritage monuments and they were protected until there was nothing left to protect. So where are these efforts coming from? From everywhere, really, from both, of course, Armenia, um, where most of the specialized craftsmen are, are based, of course, but also throughout the diaspora. Um, there are huge diaspora communities, not just um, here in Canada, but also in the U.S., in various Middle Eastern countries. Uh, I'm not sure where the 
website originated from. I believe it might be the US, but the 3D exhibition, for example, was done by Australians in support of the Armenian community, which is really, really lovely. And so it very much is the combined efforts of Armenians, not just in Armenia, but also throughout the diaspora and others who want to help. And are there products available to the residents of Nakichavan, or is the censorship there too strong? I don't think there's censorship of the internet at the very least. It mainly seems to be a lack of freedom of press and the freedom of speech within. Um, I mean, I know it's like that for Azerbaijan. I'm not sure if it's exactly the same in Nakichavan, but the internet is free. There's no censorship on the internet as far as has been said online at the very least. But the main problem really is the propagation of these false narratives, which are also disseminated through the internet. That's, that's what's really dangerous and which comes out of a lot of the revisionist history, of course, that was propagated and probably is continues to be propagated throughout Azerbaijan and also in Nakhichevan. Right. Can we talk a little bit about these uh, fake narratives happening? Because it strikes a little close to home. Yeah. So we've, we've really seen in recent years how much damage can be done by bots and these mass movements that occur online, especially these like alt-right movements that, you know, have just terrible narratives. And so the spreading of misinformation is really, really dangerous and scary, obviously, because there are lots of people who read things and who don't really question it or who don't know enough to question it and who kind of just take these things at face value. And so the propagation of this fake news has the potential to be really, really damaging. And a lot of it propagates this narrative that, A, that Khachkars are being purposefully mass-produced in various areas in order to create this supposedly fake social memory that's coming from Armenia, which is not true. Khachkars were never mass-produced. They very much are a very slow process of creation. And then there's also, of course, the narrative that in the restoration of some of these monuments, because um, especially in, in Nagorno-Karabakh, in areas that were newly recaptured in the 2020 war, for example, these areas are claiming to restore some of the monuments. But thing is, it seems like they're very slow in doing so, A, and B, they're not doing it with the best intentions of mi in mind, of course. They're kind of trying to erase the Armenianness of these monuments and trying to claim them often as the monuments of Caucasian Albania, who were also Christian. And so it's really easy to kind of claim that these churches were not Armenian, they were Caucasian Albanian, and they're the leftovers of these like great people that they claim to be related to in ancient history. And so a lot of people don't know much about this area, and I, I don't blame them for doing so, but that's, that's why a lot of these narratives that we see, especially on Twitter and even in, in newspapers, through statements by uh, state officials, they can be really, really damaging. And I think it's important to really emphasize that, as you say, it's the Azerbaijani officials who are putting out these statements, these false narratives, and it goes hand in hand with a kind of pervasive effort to wipe out the Armenian ties to this land through like the textbooks that we were talking about earlier, and through the maps, uh, these so-called you know, historic maps about what the territory used to look like and what kinds of people populated that area. So I think this is really interesting and it, it shows how these different states um, with their own political agendas are using different mediums or media over time to propagate different versions 
of a historic narrative. So we move from something like textbooks and physical books to now in social media. And I know, as you say in your paper, that this is mostly happening through Twitter, which is more or less, I think, unsurprising. <laughs> um, it does go to show that, you know, some of the problems that we're facing here in North America with fake news and with social media sort of spreading false narratives is happening overseas as well, um, and to the detriment of a lot of great sites and, and peoples. So given that your research focuses a lot on the Caucasus, and there's a, a lot going on, especially you're doing this sort of uh, diachronic analysis of the region, so from Roman times until the 19th and 20th century, what are some of the other projects that you're working on that are interdisciplinary in the same way and sort of also drawing from your classics undergrad? Yeah, so. Um... My future research plans mainly involve writing my thesis, which is going to concentrate mainly on looking at um, the, the interconnections and the cultural exchange which occurs between the Roman Empire and Armenia during the first, second centuries CE. And this is really going to be vocalized through the Temple of Godni, which is the one and only remaining colonnaded temple in all of Armenia, and I think the former Soviet Union as well. And this dates, I mean, the day is actually highly debated, but uh, seemingly it dates to approximately the first century CE. And so it, it follows a lot of the typical conventions of uh, Roman architecture that we find in the Roman East, which is really, really interesting. But it also has some quite distinct local features, like the use of local basalt to make it. And so I think uh, that's really where I'm headed right now. Is it'll be really, really exciting to kind of incorporate classics and my interests in Armenian history into this one project. Yeah, that sounds really exciting and really interdisciplinary in a way that, as we've talked about, UBC is so strong in. It would be really interesting to hear about this in the future. So hopefully we can get you back on to chat about these different architectural structures. So as our closing here, I wanted to ask kind of a big question. What does classics mean to you? Oh, wow. Um, classics, to me, is a window into the past, perhaps a little cliche, but for me, it's, it's kind of allowed me to look into a lot of the interconnections that were facilitated by the various empires, the, which define the classical world, like the Roman Empire, of course. Yeah, for me, it's just really the opportunity to look into these various cultural exchanges that are so, so numerous in the classical world and what's seen as, I mean, more broadly, the Mediterranean. That's, that's really, really interesting to me. Wow, that's, that's awesome. You're going to have a lot of work to do in this area, but I'm super excited for you. And, and I thank you for spending an hour chatting with me and educating me about the Caucasus. So thanks so much. And I hope we'll get to talk again soon. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. been listening to my conversation with Sasha Bogosian about the territory of Nakhichevan, about the cemetery at Jura, and about the social memory that is kept in monuments. Tune in next time for my conversation with Janan Perkins about Roman history and how to get away with murder in early Republican Rome. Questions for this episode were generated with the help of Zoe Luce and Emma Gauthier. Cover art for the podcast was made by Taya Kendall, music by Matthew Hawkins. The podcast is produced with help from funds from the Arts Undergraduate Society and the Financial Management Committee at McGill University. 
And we also thank McGill Campus Radio, CKUT, for the use of their equipment and recording studio. Until next time, I'm Cindy Zhang, and thank you for listening to Tell Me Muse.